You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Okay, today is Tuesday, September 27th, uh, 2022. I am here with Professor Adam Martin from Texas Tech University and the Free Market um, Institute. Adam, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. That's great. Um, I wanted to start by asking you about um, your origin story um, and uh, the experience that you had um, at University of Dallas. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what got you interested in economics, um, how you weighed your multidisciplinary interests and uh, and whatnot. So. So I actually got into economics my last year in high school as a senior. I had a really great uh, economics teacher named Hugh Franks at Midland High, who actually did his master's here at uh, Texas Tech and had AP micro and macro with him. And in the spring, we did a competition called Fed Challenge that I think still exists today at the college level, but back then was a high school thing. It's sort of uh, mock you in, but for monetary policy, where you recommend a course of action to the Fed. And so we went through and won the whole thing. We won nationals. We got to do the last round in front of FOMC members. Ed Gramlich and Bob McTeer were two of them. I don't remember who the third judge was. Um, but we uh, that's what really got me passionate about economics. So after that, I changed. I had already been accepted to the University of Dallas. So I changed my major as soon as I got on campus from philosophy and theology to economics and theology as a double major. And then I sort of got a little bit bored of, of mainstream economics when I went through the program. I remember starting a public economics class and thinking, well, this is just a really obvious set of applications of micro, and I don't feel like I'm l- really learning anything new, um, sort of class after class. Um, but then I had a few interesting experiences. I took an ethics and economics class that was really great, where we read uh, Nozick and Sin and Hayek's Fatal Conceit uh, and a few other things. And then I did an internship at the Dallas Fed in their economic education department. So I had the contacts from uh, my time in Fed Challenge. And so I went to the Dallas Fed for a summer and worked with their their education department. And they had a weird set of publications called um, Economic Insights, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that I now know was written by Bob Formaney, uh, who was a historian of thought that they had on staff. It's weird to me that the Federal Reserve has a historian of economic thought on staff, but that's where I first read about Mises and Bastiat and learned more about Hayek. And this is right around the time that Commanding Heights came out. So I got into sort of understanding the 20th century history of economic thought. And I knew I was interested in this thing called Austrian economics. I didn't really know what it was until I took, we had a a year-long sequence with Sam Bostaff, who was my main undergrad professor on the history of economic thought, where we covered different schools of thought, and then a semester of comparative economic systems, where we did the, the socialist calculation debate in grueling detail, all the back and forth. And that's why I reg- where I originally read some of your work. And so when it came time to think about doing grad school, um, Bostaff told me, you know, just go to GMU. It's the only place you'll be happy, which was probably about correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sam is a very uh, interesting person because uh, he's a great teacher for you because he's a scholar uh, first before he's an advocate for any other you know, position. So, uh, you know, he's a very, very rigorous, he's an Aristotelian, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, so he's a, he's a very, uh, he's always been very impressive scholar to me. Um, in, in that sense, he's, he's, um, yeah, he's a great role model in there. Um, the one of the things that was interesting is, is, uh, to me is how you picked up economics, uh, and the, the, the you know, cause, uh, there's this distinction that Buchanan makes between a natural economist and a properly trained economist. A natural economist is someone who picks up the intuition of the logic of economics, like immediately upon hearing it, right? It's not, you know, a lot of people say economics is counterintuitive, but to some of us, it's not counterintuitive. It seems like just applied common sense. We just pick it up and we fall in love with the beautiful logic of it. But then the properly trained economist 
understands nuance and other kinds of things, you know, that come in subjectivism and things. And Buchanan makes this distinction. So I think that you can't be a great economist unless you're a natural economist, but you also have to be a properly trained natural economist rather than just a blunt force instrument. And I think that that's reflected, I think, in your evolution there, where you get to a public economics class and you realize it's just the consistent and persistent application of these core principles. But then these other areas show these broader nuanced debates about institutional context and whatnot. Um, In retrospect, have you seen that interaction with your own, like, as you read Buchanan, you know, as you go from Hayek to reading Bastiat, Mises and Hazlitt and whatnot, to then eventually, you know, reading Knight and Buchanan and other thinkers like that, that are very complicated, like Knight's a very complicated thinker, and you're an expert on Frank Knight's thinking. Um, you know, there's this nuance in there. How, how do you weigh all of that with your natural economics? Well, I mean, this is going to be a very sort of rote answer in some sense, because it just goes back to Buchanan and Knight, which is, I think, about the the way that they use the deer beaver model in Adam Smith, that these really simple concepts that if you get the intuition in my, like I said, my high school teacher was great at emphasizing the intuition. So the process of market adjustment, when, you know, you go out of equilibrium and then work your way back towards it, uh, even within a perfect competition context, he sort of drilled that into our heads and it was all very sort of easy to understand. And you read the Dear Beaver model and there's this sort of relentless push towards equilibrium. And so the, the complementarity, I think, between those very basic models, those very basic uh, sort of intuition pumps for economists and institutional analysis, I think, runs pretty deep. I think there's a there's a divergence between the way um, that political economists do this versus regular economists. Regular economists, I think, get the intuitions, the, the same sort of basic intuitions, and they want to then complicate the models further and further and see what happens. Whereas we want to sort of step back and say, okay, what is what are the institutional conditions that allow for those sorts of simple models to explain patterns of human behavior and such? So I think they're both two ways of trying to go deeper into the project. And I don't know how complementary they are, but I definitely went the more philosophical direction as I went on. Well, you try to, you have an essay on Austrian methodology that I teach every year uh, to our graduate students, our second year uh, graduate students. And you try to show a way in which you reconcile both of those approaches. Um, you know, and, and, and I highly recommend that essay by Adam uh, in the Oxford Handbook of uh, Austrian Economics. Because um, it's a little deeper even than the way that you describe it is even a, a slight wrinkle on what Wagner's foreground background kind of discussion. <clears throat> um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about your graduate school experience, but mainly your cohort, um, because you had a very interesting cohort uh, that worked with you. So maybe you could talk a little bit about some of their work, Deanna and uh, Michael and Dan and, and also Dave, the Scarbecks and, you know, the interaction effects that you had during your time as a graduate student with your peers. Yeah, so I the the number one thing that I got out of that was in addition to just being surrounded by very smart and creative people was that we all plunged ourselves into the work uh, 60, 80 hours a week. And it was because and not because we felt like we were grinding. It was just we loved it. And so we would take our classes at GMU and we'd come home and we'd stay up talking about those very same ideas all night long. So uh, I lived with Dan D'Amico and Nick Snow, actually, briefly. He was in undergrad uh, and lived with us after Hurricane Katrina, got him kicked out of New Orleans briefly. Um, And then Jeffrey Lee, Alex Fink. Uh, had the chance to be roommates with all those people. Uh, I remember when we we sort of settled into a pattern our second or third year where we would wake up, sit at our computers, and I could see Dan's desk and Dan could see my desk, and we would work all day. Sometime around 4 p.m., Dan would would crash and come into the room and say, call Michael and Deanna, we got to go get dinner. So then we'd call up Michael, Deanna, Michael Thomas and Deanna Thomas. and Well, now Deanna Thomas, then Deanna Viner. And uh, we'd go get dinner and talk economics some more. So, um, and then the the diversity of research interests. So you've got Dan working on issues related to prisons, uh, Jeff Lee doing a lot of history of economic thought, 
you've got David Scarbeck working on prison gangs, Emily working on uh, philanthropy and recovery from the Chicago fire and those sorts of topics, Michael working on behavioral economics and repugnant markets, and Deanna working on uh, public choice and regulation. So uh, we had a core set of ideas that we all cared about, but that diversity of applied interests, I think, really drove us all um, to try and, and be better and to improve each other's work. Yeah, and some very successful uh, publishers in that group as well. Uh, so there was a lot to learn um, in the process of, of, uh, of doing that. So then uh, after uh, uh, GMU, you, you have a variety of experiences with Institute for Humane Studies, where you're kind of a research coordinator and research identifier. and But then also at NYU, where you're working with Bill Easterly, as well as with the Austrians and Rizzo and, and Harper, but then King's College, and then eventually settling at Texas Tech. Uh, if you could, I mean, I know that's a lot uh, of years, uh, but maybe, you know, walk us through that uh, decade or whatever, and in in how those different experiences shaped you. And I guess I'm forgetting Duke as well. Uh, and, uh, and so maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about that. So the, the, the thing I got out of my time at NYU, well, two things, then the second one really carried over into King's. The first is trying to think about Austrian economics as a way to bridge these two literatures that are about the same topic, but they don't really talk to each other. And one is the literature on economic growth generally. So moving from solo to the endogenous growth theories and stuff like that. And the other is the literature on the relationship between institutions and development. And those two are like these weirdly separate strains of literature. If you look at, I think, a great starting piece for any development grad class is um, the Charles Jones Facts of Economic Growth piece. And it's all these stylized facts about growth rates and stuff like that from that literature. And the last one is just, oh, yeah, and these institutional things matter, too. And that, to me, is this weird disconnect between two literatures that are fundamentally asking the same question. So one of the things that I started trying to zero in on was using um, sort of Kirzner's theory of entrepreneurship as a way to try to bridge the gap between those two literatures, because uh, Kirzner's entrepreneur gets you, I think, to something like economic modern economic growth, but he's also institutionally situated. He relies on the price system and the property uh, system and the courts and so on and so forth to even be able to uh, initiate the entrepreneurial market process. So I think that's a that's an important contribution that that Austrians can make to try and bringing those two strands of the modern academic literature together. Um, that's one of the things I got from interacting quite a bit with with Bill Easterly. Um, the other thing I got to do at NYU that was great was sit in on Russell Hardin's uh, political theory class. It was on justice in uh, Hobbes, Hume, and Rawls. And that really opened me up to seeing the uh, applicability of the sorts of institutional analysis that we like to do to questions in political philosophy. Then that really carried over to my time at King's because that was a very interdisciplinary department. It was a great place to be because you could a seminar would be about Hobbes one week and about behavioral economics the next and more standard economics the week after that. Um, so it was just this constant churn of new ideas that we were being exposed to. Uh, in our time there. And there I got to teach uh, ethics and economics at the graduate level, which was great, getting to dive into uh, Jerry Gauss and Dave Schmitz and Jim Buchanan and Amartya Sen uh, and all these different thinkers uh, at a more advanced level. So that really helped. And you had some interesting students there too, right? Had some interesting what? Students there as well at King's. Yeah, we had some great students. So we had um, Wolf Von Lair, who's now the president of Students for CEO of Students for Liberty, Anton House, who's a excellent economic historian, does a lot of work that's uh, relevant, I think, to people that like Kirshner about invention during the Industrial Revolution. Nick Cowan uh, came through and Matthias Peterson, who I co-authored with, is in Chile doing great work in their PPE program. So we had some really superb uh, graduates. And Pablo's students. down there now, too. Did you know that? Who? The... the, the What's the other guy that's there that does money and stuff? He, he's also now oh, uh, Pablo Paniagua. Yeah, yeah, Pablo. Yeah, he's down yeah. there. And and I I think that, did you overlap? Did Enio take you for uh, as a as a master student? I left right before Enio got there. Okay, all right. I think he was going there to study with you. 
Um, all right. So then uh, after Kings, uh, you move to TTU, uh, to mm -hmm. this new center that Ben's built, Ben Powell is building. Um, you know, how many years was it in existence before you joined? Was it? Uh, it was a year and a half. So they got founded in early January 2013. So that yeah. meant they couldn't really get people on the market until that fall, which meant I joined in fall 2013. Yeah. So tell us about your experience there. I mean, it's been an amazing uh, decade of building up that program. Yeah, we are celebrating our 10th anniversary this coming spring. Um, at first, it was just, you know, a handful of us in the office. It was me and Ben and Ed Stringham, uh, along with Chuck Long and Kate Sheehan, who was here as a visitor uh, now at Creighton. And we were just a small group at the time, but we've grown tremendously since then. We've added some tremendous faculty and Andy Young and Jamie Pavlik and Kevin and Robin Greer and Alex Salter replaced uh, Ed Stringham pretty early on. Um, so we are at, I think, a pretty stable equilibrium for now. You'd have to ask Ben about what the, the master plan is moving forward. And uh, it's been great. I mean, the we ended up in, because of the way the Institute is structured, we ended up in different departments across campus. Uh, but having FMI has allowed us to all still interact with each other in a seminar culture and to work with graduate students across different departments. So we get to work with uh, both political science and ag and applied econ graduate students. Yeah. And, and you've had some outstanding students come through. Uh, Justin uh, is one of them uh, and just took a job in, in Louisiana. Um, so, uh, you know, um, it's been pretty impressive, uh, the number of students I've been a visiting professor there a couple times and just blown away by the community. Um, if I was a young faculty member, I think I'd probably want to be a Texas tech, uh, uh, you know, uh, with the excitement that's all going on there. Uh, one of the things that you've consistently done is run a reading group. Uh, for that, you, you know, can you talk a little bit about that's with undergraduates, uh, but you devote a lot of time and effort to developing that group and the re selection of readings that you work with and the way that you approach that with them. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we knew we wanted to have something like that early on. Unfortunately, we had a donor approach us my very first semester here. So we got to start it our second semester. And uh, we were in a unique position because he, this particular donor, Grady Rusher, who ran the McLean Company at the time, uh, wanted to work with multiple schools. And so I think we were the first reading group program to uh, initiate this idea of a summit program where students from different universities were doing the same readings, but they would come together at some point during the semester, uh, ideally to meet one of the authors that they had been reading, hear them speak, and get to talk with each other. And so you were actually the first one. Uh, the first summit speaker, because the that first semester was the topic was entrepreneurship in the history of economic thought. Uh, so I designed that one because that's the sort of nerdy thing that I love to talk about. So we went ev everyone from Smith through Say and Marx and uh, Mises and Hayek and Keynes uh, to talk about entrepreneurship. And what we found was that, you know, one of the things about undergrad reading groups that's very different from say, professors at a Liberty Fund conference is that it can be like pulling teeth to get them to talk. With professors, it's the opposite problem. We're programmed to talk in 50-minute increments. So <laughs> it's it's harder to, to have a conversation sometimes uh, with professors, whereas with these students, it it's the... The, the skill set I've had to develop is primarily around keeping them engaged for the entire time that we're together. Um, and so what we found was that the summit really helps because that there's a, a certain level of familiarity that they develop with one another. They become friends. We've had, you know, couples get engaged coming out of this program uh, where people develop these really close bonds. And that's really important, even though they all I, I intentionally recruit students from different uh, majors, different political viewpoints, et cetera, different life experiences, because I want a diversity of views at the table because that makes the conversation more interesting. But they learn that they're not going to get yelled at. They're not going to get in trouble just because they disagree uh, with one of their fellow reading group participants. Uh, and that makes them very much more comfortable and much more open to discuss and have more serious discussions as they I move mean, not, you, you don't You can't do this across the board, but you know, the reality is, is that you get some very talented students. 
I was uh, last year when I was there in the spring, one of your, uh, um, you know, participants, I mean, she's a, you know, hard scientist and she's thinking about like Caltech and MIT and stuff for her PhD. I mean, it's pretty amazing, you know, talented, you know, group of kids um, that are wrestling with these kind of issues. And so you do a great job there. Yeah, that's a that's a huge benefit to the program. I mean, I get to skim some of the best students out of a 30 something thousand student pool and get them in there. And I remember the the best piece of teaching advice you ever gave us. And one I repeat all the time is don't forget that you were the weird one in undergrad. So don't teach to a younger version of yourself because you were the one that was all excited about economics sitting in the classroom. Right. And the fun thing about this reading group is these are the younger versions of us in that they are just excited about ideas and they just want to talk. So yeah, it's a, it's a real privilege to get to, to go on a journey with those students every semester, pick books that I haven't read that I want to read and see what smart young people have to say about them. That's awesome. They also like the barbecue. Yes. So you don't undermine the, the, the <laughs> don't underestimate the, the draw of Evie May barbecue. Um, all right. I want to a pivot and switch a little bit to your own research. Um, that uh, you have engaged in um, throughout your career. Um, so you have actually done a wide range of work from very philosophical uh, essays, uh, say on the notion of degenerate cosmopolitanism, work on egalitarianism, um, but also work in applied political economy, like the work that you've done with Deanna Thomas and, and other kinds of ideas. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, your work. And then at the end, I'd like to talk about uh, some of the stuff coming out of your dissertation, maybe that eventually is wrestling with more theoretical concepts uh, in, in, in developing economics. But first, just talk a little bit about some of your favorite papers and uh, some of the stuff that you've done and, and the way that you think about it. Okay. Yeah. The One of the things, this goes back to the the point about um, discipline and how hard it is to write uh, an obvious contribution using sort of Austrian or Wagnerian ideas or something like that. Um, so for me, part of the reason I was attracted to Kirchner's thought is that it was it's got this clear relationship to the basic logic of choice that economists already know. And then he's got this concept of alertness. And so one of the things that that, that occurred to me fairly early on was that Alertness should be an empirically operationalizable idea in some sense, even if we're just using, say, qualitative evidence, right? So imagine that we've got a, a sort of model where all the agents have the same or similar types of alertness to profit opportunities. Well, then Kirzner is superfluous in some sense, right? All we've done is we've taken a standard market clearing story, but we've added an unnecessary step of they don't notice the opportunity, then they notice it, then the market clears. So the, the alertness only becomes interesting if it's differentiated between different people. So if it's asymmetric or specialized in some sense. And so this goes back to an essay that Frank Knight wrote in the Journal of Economic History back in the 1940s, where he said, if you wanted to do empirical work in entrepreneurship, what you would do is look at particular sorts of innovations and ask about the background of the entrepreneurs of the innovators and ask what was it in their experience that allowed them to be the one to make this sort of a discovery. And so that uh, undermine, underpins uh, this. I really like this piece I wrote. It's not in a, in a very fancy journal, but I really like this piece I wrote with uh, two of our grad students here at Tech, uh, Audrey Redford and Ray March on uh, Kirzner and Baumel on the relationship. And what we do is we sort of take this idea from Kirzner about uh, alertness being differentiated, and we use work that uh, Audrey and Ray did on, Ray did work on uh, doctors doing off-label prescriptions. And what was it, what was the institutional environment around the medical community that allowed them to figure out these different uses for medicine? And then Audrey's work on illegal drug markets, where what are, what are the institutional features that shape the development of different sorts of opioids and things like that. So the, that that work sort of verges into what I would call economic sociology in some sense, in that we're asking about the, the social background within which economic activity takes place. But that to me is when people say that Kirzner is not empirically tractable, I think they might just be asking about the wrong 
types of empirics, where I think he's a very valuable tool for doing these sorts of more historical pieces about the evolution of different practices. Let me ask that, you. Let me ask you a follow-up question about that. It's a slightly different one, but it's it's uh, you found a way to reconcile what McCloskey is talking about in a way that I think is is um, you know really quite insightful and brilliant that she hasn't necessarily done. The difference between you know so she has this big complaint about neo institutionalism, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that you've described it is basically. That, you know, what she's talking about is is these shifts in the supply curve, right, kind of, you know, idea and the gains that are from that, because her argument is that just recognizing private property rights doesn't give us enough of an oomph to explain the great fact of history. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I think it's very related to what you were just talking about with the way to think about Kirzner and and these kind of ideas here. Yeah, so my uh, um, that paper was written quite a while ago. Uh, back when I was at NYU thinking about these these issues of entrepreneurship and development. Um, so for me, the question is, for from sort of a, a Kirzner point of view, can the ethical or cultural change that McCloskey wants to describe affect our, uh, not, uh, not just affect incentives, because that's sort of the easy story to tell, but also affect the epistemic social environment? And so one of the things that I, I dug into was uh, Terence Keeley's history on inventors in the Industrial Revolution. And what we find is that they fail over and over and over again. Right. So they they some of these guys die completely destitute because they're trying out all these new ideas and they might finally hit on one or it might finally become useful actually after they die. Uh, something along those lines. And so for me, that that raises an, inter- an interesting question about failure that if in the past, if in say in the Middle Ages, if you had tried something new and failed, this might have been interpreted as some sort of providential warning that you were going down a wrong path, trying to disrupt the natural order of things. Uh, and so that that tolerance for failure is not just an incentive point; it's also an epistemic point. If I fail, what does it mean that I have failed? Does it mean that this particular idea was wrong and I need to tweak it some more, or does it mean that I've somehow violated the great chain of being? Right. And so that that interpretive spin on the way that people view their activities, I think, is going to generate the sort of epistemic effects that you would need to get uh, a Kirzenarian growth story off the ground. And that relates to this. The, the, the thing that got me interested in grad school in economics in the first place was the socialist calculation debate. And it's always bothered me. You might know this better than I do since you edited the 20 volume works, 20 volume collection of all the papers. Um, but it's always bothered me when people discuss socialist calculation just in terms of market efficiency. Like it's certainly about discovering lower cost methods of things. So I see the move that most economists are making when they read that and they think efficiency. Um, But efficiency is both too exacting of a standard and too lax of a standard, I think, for what Mises and Hayek are talking about, right? It's too demanding in that a real world market's always going to have frictions and it's never going to look exactly like the textbook model, but it's also too lax in that real world markets produce innovations. They shove those supply curves out to the right. And so that's actually a much greater welfare gain than eliminating a little red deadweight loss triangle. So Adam, I think that that point about the deadweight losses versus capturing that tremendous expansion, that's the McCloskey point as well, right? Um, Now, this issue of dealing with failure in the institutional environment that allows that Maybe I mean, maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I wanted to move from that to this discussion in your paper on degenerate uh, cosmopolitanism, which is in social philosophy and policy, I think, right? Isn't that where it's published? Uh, because it's an issue that's um, issued somehow like with this, like, again, when you were in graduate school, there was this issue of robust political economy floating around. And there's certain ideas with that. There's also... Uh, the idea of resilience, you know, you you did some work, uh, you know, on the Katrina project and, you know, the whole idea there was about resilience of societies. And, you know, we were dancing around these ideas, but you've developed this this uh, this idea uh, in, in laying out the sort of broader idea of what the cosmopolitan liberal society needs to look like in some sense. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so like uh, a lot of my ideas, I eventually find uh, a Richard Wagner piece where he beat me to it. Uh, so I, in this case, I found the the piece beforehand, and 
Uh, he he mentioned degeneracy and talks about it some in this piece from the Review of Austrian Economics, I think from 2014 or so. Um, but he doesn't go deep into it with regards to, to governance and this specifically for a, a special issue on international governance. So the reason I got attracted to this idea of degeneracy is because it lets us have a sort of inside-out perspective on institutional reform instead of an outside-in perspective. So yeah, I can look at a system and I can say, well, that's a polycentric system. Well, that's a liberal social order or something like that. But that doesn't tell me anything about how to get from A to B. If I don't already have a polycentric system, what would it take to build one up? And so I'm deeply influenced by Hayek's general social ontology. I've read Law, Legislation, and Liberty in undergrad, and it's it's been with me um, the whole time. Got to spend time with Bruce Caldwell at Duke uh, digging into some of these issues. And so Hayek's view, right, is that our, our mind is a product of social evolution as much as it is a driver of social evolution. And so I'm always worried when we try to take in political philosophy, take these big outside in perspectives, which I take to be like the Rawlsian tradition where we're going to step back and judge social institutions as a whole. Whereas I think Hayek has more of a model where we are inside of the society itself. And the best we can do is sort of tweak rules on the margin. And that left open the question of how do you tweak them? And then I found this idea of degeneracy. So the idea of degeneracy is this, it's this middle ground between uh, redundancy and ultra specialization. So one one way to deal with error, error is ubiquitous. We're always gonna gonna screw things up sometimes. Is through redundancy. So if the if the tire on my car blows out, right, I want an identical tire to be able to slap on there to fix it. Um, and re so redundancy is great at doing that, but redundancy has a sort of built in expiration date if the environment is constantly changing. Because gradually, and this comes straight out of systems theory, gradually you will lose functionality as you work your way through the substitutes and replacements that are available for, whether it's a business firm providing a particular service uh, or a cell that performs a particular function in a body, anything like that. Um, the pure specialization side where, set, where the units of a system are all differentiated from each other, like business firms with different products or cells with different functions, that has this great trait of being evolvable and adaptable. So it can change, it can develop new functions because uh, new functions come from combinations of system elements. This is something that, that's true in the growth literature. It's true in uh, complex systems theory, et cetera, right? If you can, you can take two new computer pieces and smash them together and make an iPhone, that gives you new functionality. But you need things to be differentiated in order to get those, those real innovations. But pure specialization leaves you vulnerable to the problem of if something goes wrong, that's it. The whole the whole game is up uh, in that there's no replacement. So degeneracy is this middle ground where there's different specialized units in the system that do distinct things, but they overlap. So like an iPhone versus a Samsung or something like that. And that they're not exactly the same product, one can substitute for the other if one fails. And degeneracy is what allows you to get both the resilience to changes, unexpected changes, and innovation and growth through time, discovering new ways of doing things. And so it's the way that you get to what Taleb calls anti-fragility as opposed to just fragility, where you actually, when stresses are put in the system, you actually develop new ways of doing things and that forces evolution rather than causing the system to break down. Um, it's also, you know, it's an interesting idea because, you know, Lachman has this idea of, of uh, you know, heterogeneous but multi-specific capital goods, which also fit into that story. And in summarizing Lachman's views of institutions, Langlois introduced this idea of coherence and flexibility in institutions, and that these institutions have to be both, you know, coherent yet flexible. And so there is a kind of an intriguing thing. How much of this, this is a totally out of the blue question to you, but as a, as a scholar of Kersner, how much of this is just Kersner's middle ground, like all the time? Like we always come back with these ideas that we have to find this kind of middle ground between the sort of uh, pure view of chaos and the pure view of order is like, you know, destiny or something like that. And that somehow there's this middle ground that we're always occupying why is it, I mean, do you see that in, in this story or do you see not? No, I, 100%. I, uh, when I read Lachman, I get the sense that he has described 
the problem situation that human choosers confront in an incredibly evocative and useful way. So the way I read his, his capital theory is, um, when I need to teach it quickly to students, is what sort of capital theory actually would make Mises and Hayek write about socialist calculation? So if capital was all, and it goes exactly back to this degeneracy point, it's, you're right, it's exactly the same point in the sense that if capital was all strictly heterogeneous, if a piece of capital could only be used for one thing, there is no calculation problem. You just use it for one thing. If all capital was strictly homogenous, there's no calculation problem, right? Because you just use the capital to whatever ends are the highest valued. You don't need to actually combine things in different ways. So the, the calculation problem goes away at both of those two extremes. And it's exactly in the middle where you have uh, the problem of economic calculation actually arises. And so while I love Lachman's description of the problem, I think Kirzner gives us more tractability in terms of analyzing how we, we solve the problem. So yeah, you brought up Vincent Ostrom. Ostrom has also got this great passage in uh, Epistemic Choice and Public Choice, which then becomes part of the meaning of democracy, where he was specifically wants to apply Lachman's capital theory to institutions. So in some sense, that's what that's exactly what this paper is doing. I don't explicitly invoke Lachman, but I think they are functionally equivalent ideas and asking, okay, from the inside perspective, and Vincent Ostrom, I think, is a great inside-out political theorist as opposed to outside-in. Um, from that inside-out perspective, how can we reform institutions in a way that makes them more robust and adaptable? And so degeneracy doesn't require you to see the whole system from the outside-in. You only have to ask, on the margin, does this increase substitutability? Does this increase complementarity? And so it gives us a sort of tractable way to evaluate institutional change. Yeah, I, I, you know, as you know, I made this distinction between mainline economics and mainstream, where mainline economics is people that uh, basically derive the invisible hand proposition from the rational choice postulate via institutions. So they put a whole emphasis on property, contract and consent. And that is a key issue about how it is that you bridge the gap between the individual behavior and the, and the uh, social outcomes. But I think actually another common characteristic of those people is this inside out versus outside in perspective that uh, that it's uh, we recognize we are who we study and that we are part of the equilibrium and that that's, you know, this ongoing process, whereas other people see the outside in, they see economics as this tool for controlling, you know, that and. And I think if you look at it that way, you can go from Adam Smith to Vernon Smith in the same way that I do by this outside in versus inside out uh, view. So I like that um, view. I think it's very difficult in our modern political economy to do that inside out because the demand is for outside in. Uh, you know, that's that's all the tools and everything that are done. Um I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the work that you've done on egalitarianism and the new egalitarians, because I think it's it relates back to what you were talking about before earlier with theories of justice and, and, and whatnot and how you've tackled that kind of question, because it's obviously one of the main issues in the world today. Yeah, so that, um, that particular piece came about because... Um... I think it was Chris Coyne asked me to write a piece about egalitarianism. I didn't want to write about material egalitarianism because I think that idea is just dead in the water. I don't understand how how that really has much analytical traction, um, even having read a bunch of philosophy about it. Um, and talk about instead the sort of egalitarianism that motivates a lot of public discourse today, which surrounds issues about identity politics and people calling each other social justice warriors or woke or whatever. And I wanted to very consciously try to avoid terms of abuse because a lot of that debate is very heated. And uh, I have my skepticism about the substance of the, the arguments that woke or critical theory people make, but I wanted to set those aside as well and do a sort of road to serfdom exercise. Right? So in road to serfdom, Hayek says, okay, let's set aside the question of central planning as an effective means of running the economy. Let's set aside whether socialist economics works in some sense, right? And just ask the question, what are the consequences of implementing this sort of a program? And so I wanted to ask, what are the consequences of adopting uh, this sort of terminology? And I think as far as predictions go, it's going pretty well, the piece that I wrote. <laughs> so the, the the two things I point out are that, again, I, I always take a, a Hayek 
social ontology point of view is my departure point. And that Hayek's got this great discussion of a, a great society where we interact with strangers. And the reason we can interact with strangers is because we follow abstract rules. So I don't have to know a lot about you, right? I just have to know that you're going to respect my property rights and that you're going to accept my currency and you and I can trade with each other um, without having to know much about each other at all. And that obviously, that that logic pushes us towards a world where we hopefully overcome racial differences and gender differences and see the person as just a person that we're interacting with under an institutional regime rather than as a member of an enemy group that we might have to deal with like in ages past. And one of the things that struck me about this, this new these new talking points about race and gender and stuff is that they want to bring group identity back to being a central focus. And that so immediately that struck me as a, a sort of backwards move from the perspective of a Hayekian social morality in that we're reintroducing identity as a central feature rather than trying to focus on abstract rules where we can we can live together. And that what are the consequences of that? Well, um, the the key distinction I make in the paper is between I, I use this as a token, but you can put any sort of group um, group tag in there: racism one and racism two. So you could put sexism one, sexism two, homophobia one, homophobia two, whatever in there. And racism one is the idea that you're bigoted; you, you don't like people that are members of other races, and that's still what most people carry around in their head as the common definition of racism. And racism two is the specific woke or critical theory idea that there's these invisible social structures, which is a point I'm totally comfortable with in, in a lot of social science contexts. Property rights are invisible social structures that, that govern our interactions. But there's these invisible social structures that perpetuate inequalities through time. So you can have some, some people that write in this literature almost sound like invisible hand theorists to some extent, where there's this accidental reproduction of inequality. Um, and like I said, I didn't want to get into the substance of, of the ideas. I just wanted to ask, okay, so how do you fight racism too? if that's what you're you're focused on. And the first thing you're going to need to know is the the detailed history of the groups and the causality that the the causal chains that are leading those groups to become disadvantaged. And that's not the sort of knowledge that a regular person can have. Right? In a in a hacking great society the regular person just needs to know, hey, I have to respect your property rights. Hey, you have to speak the language to be able to talk to people, communicate with them and use money. But those are all fairly simple sets of rules that the human mind can grasp and allows us to interact with strangers, right? Now we're demanding that people have these complex causal stories about why certain groups are disadvantaged in order to effectively remedy those disadvantages. So the first thing I, I first argument I make in the paper is that this relies on a sort of priesthood or epistocracy, right? um, assuming that the knowledge they have is somehow valid. So you need something like a social scientist to tell you why is this group disadvantaged and therefore what are the appropriate actions to take to correct that disadvantage. Um, and the other, so that's, the, I call it a, an epistocracy, and I also call it an obscurantist epistocracy, See the second part, which is that I borrow the word obscurantist from Jan Elster, who's written about the, the foundational thinkers in this field as writing in what he perceives to be an obscurantist way. Um, if I had to do it over again, I might call it obfuscationist rather than obscurantist in the sense that one of the key principles of this whole worldview is that speech can be a harm that speech can perpetuate these social structures that in fact underwrite tremendous harm to people. So a great example is when um, there was this debate uh, that I cataloged between two thinkers and one of them accuses the other of supporting the same ideas, which are the ideas of white supremacy that underwrote the slave trade, right? So now if I engage in debate with someone that holds this belief, I'm disagree if I'm disagreeing with them, I'm causing actual harm and I'm actually perpetuating structures that have caused tremendous harm throughout history. And so there's this attempt to shut down disagreement. And it, uh, the logic makes perfect sense, right? It all I'm actually impressed by how much of a tight circle it is in terms of the logic in that um, it's hard to find a way to actually engage with this point of view in that you sort of feel like you just have to go along with it. And so the, the characteristic tendencies in this, this new, new egalitarian philosophy are these two, to uh, privilege certain sorts of knowledge that experts have. And so the, you have people going around as consultants now to firms making hundreds of thousands of dollars telling them how they can be more diverse and more equitable. 
and more inclusive, right? And this idea that we can't really bro broach disagreement. Like, we just have to shut down these speakers uh, because it is the acts of speech and such that perpetuate the, the harmful social structures. And that ties into the whole issue about why it is that someone like Pinker would want to have a new defense of the Enlightenment, um, because that's actually the engagement that needs to happen. But we'll leave that for another day uh, to talk about those things. I wanted to, um, I think it's a very provocative uh, paper that you that you wrote there. I, I have in recent years become somewhat attracted to a similar kind of problem with actually the old egalitarianism, uh, if, I can, if I can say that, which is that um, um, I read this book by Bernard Yak many years ago called The Longing for Total Revolution. And the subtitle is about uh, Rousseau, Marx, and Nietzsche. And the, the, the context of it is that um, these thinkers are non-enlightenment thinkers. So it's not like, so when you try to provide reason and evidence they're not going to be, that's not the adjudicator because what they do is paint an ascetic and you either accept the picture or you reject the picture, but there's no debating over the picture. They paint a picture about the world and, you know, that's what's attractive to people. And so you adopt that picture, that worldview, and there's nothing that can cut into it because it's a painting that they've just painted up on the wall. And so they're not enlightenment thinkers because they're not submitting themselves to logic and evidence. And it's an interesting thing with Marx because his whole writings are meant to be put in a logic and evidence form. But yet, you know, think about Marxism, you know, and then you add up like the long list of empirical propositions that Marx has held. And then you check them off against the data and you're like, nope, that doesn't hold, that doesn't hold, that doesn't hold. But that hasn't stopped anyone from being a Marxist, right? Even in, in uh, when the global financial crisis came out, I remember, you know, uh, the guy from the New Yorker, Cassidy, had a whole piece on, you know, this is Karl Marx's time. Karl Marx was terrible at predicting the future, but he analyzed capitalism better than anyone. Well, analyzing capitalism requires that you have empirical propositions about the nature of capitalism. But when we look at all of his of his things, increasing concentration of capital, all these kind of propositions, the you know the immiseration of the working class, all those things, they just disappeared, right? They they don't hold. And so, you know, why is it that we would still hold on to it? And I think it's because of this issue that Bernard Yak gets at, and and, and it, it it's a it's an old book, uh, longing for total revolution. But I think the totality project. There's one by Martin Jay. A book on totality, the totality project and what was involved in, in Marxism in the 20th century is actually something that a lot of people still don't understand completely because they're, they're trying to address it in ways that are not uh, comparing apples and apples. It's, it's a, you know, they're doing it the wrong way. Um, yeah, I do think Marxism matters a lot to this, this debate and it matters in a way that's very poorly reflected in public discourse in that there's a lot of panic about Marxism being taught coming from the right wing. My, my rule of thumb is that, that wokeism can be bad, but the cure is often, the proposed cure is often worse. If not I agree with you hundred percent on worse. that. I, I think it's, I think it's also uh, a huge misunderstanding of what actually is in the minds of the people that are operationalizing things. I think that there's an origin story of critical theorists, which actually fits with what we were just talking about at a high level of theory, but they're also Gramscians <laughs> and it, it translated through the cultural institutions. And it's kind of like very far down the line. Um, I don't want to go into this, but just to flip back a little time hop back to your discussion about capital, the person that taught me the point about no problem with homogeneous capital, no problem with purely specific capital was actually Murray Rothbard in man, economy, and state. And um, and I, you and I are in a uh, kind of an unusual situation in our current context because, you know, in, in our teaching of Austrian economics and discourse about Austrian economics, Rothbart was never poo-pooed by any of us at Mason or, or any of that stuff like that. We really care about like incorporating his insights when they're valuable in the same way that we incorporate the insights of, you know, 
Lockman or Kersner or any of the other Shackle or whoever else is the thinkers at the time. Um, but yet we're also highly critical of the way Rothbardianism has translated or whatever. I don't know if you want to talk about it and you can pass on it, but you know, as a young person coming into the to these debates where you know we're trying to talk about the nature of Austrian economics, this is one of the things that creates a lot of noise, I think, in understanding the progressive research program of Austrian economics. Or yeah, you- so I like I said, I'm a little weird in that my first Austrian book I read was The Fatal Conceit. And then it was all Mises and Hayek taught um, by Sam Bostaff as this sort of unified research program. So I didn't actually encounter Rothbard until just before graduate school. Uh, I started reading some of it and it seemed like a perfectly serviceable um, way because the, the reading through a bunch of Hayek, uh, legislation, liberty, et cetera, made me very skeptical of like the perfect competition model. And those sorts of things. So whereas, whereas a lot of people read Hayek and they think, oh, yeah, this is just he's describing a sort of social ontology that goes along with neoclassical price theory. I actually viewed it as like a radical critique of neoclassical price theory. And Rothbard, I read it and he's just the, the man economy and states a beautiful uh, deduction of a sort of price theory that fits into that broader social ontology. And so it's I don't think there's much new there as compared to Minger and Mises, but Minger and Mises, the price theory is all scattered throughout different parts of their books. I mean, because Minger's more systematic, but he's not as broad as Mises is. Whereas Mises, he comes around to the micro theory here and there, but there's not like a starting point where you have this clear line from individual shoes on down to, to downward sloping demand curves. And I think Rothbard's book is is fantastic uh, on that margin. I've never, uh, I, I also think like his, his vision of like a, an anarchist society is, it's fascinating. It's interesting, and if you if you're not willing to at least entertain it, I think you're you're letting your imagination be stunted. So I used to joke like, never trust someone that hasn't had a Rothbard phase, but never trust someone that doesn't outgrow their Rothbard phase. <laughs> and that's too flippant. But um, the, the idea is that like you get inspired by this radical vision, and where you end up at the end, whatever. It's just this sort of to it sort of shocks you out of the the common beliefs that people hold that are often the result of more like social psychology. And so asking you to think very differently about things. Um, but then I think there's a point at which I'm not ultimately a, a natural rights Rothbardian guy. Um, so the system's not ultimately convincing, but I do think he's got a lot of valuable points that he makes along the way. I think that's right. I mean, I, anyway, I think, I think that that's, you know, we, you need to set the record straight that, you know, we, we, and, and it's important on this because there's a lot of noise on this. So you just finished uh, perhaps maybe one of the major initiatives in Austrian economics um, over the last several years. You had a Templeton grant from Templeton Foundation, and you sponsored a series of conferences that have led to various publications that have addressed various different aspects of modern Austrian economics um, and uh, its advances. Um, can you talk a little bit about the conferences that you had and the volumes that you produced uh, with that grant? Um, because that's in many ways the most recent cutting edge of Austrian economics, which you tried to do. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we, uh, Dan D'Amico and I inherited advances in Austrian economics uh, from Chris Coyne and Virgil Store, who were the previous editors of the series. And we thought, well, we have to fill this thing up and how do we make it? you know, not just a diet review of Austrian economics. How do we make it something distinctive? Uh, So we settled on this social philosophy and policy model where you invite papers on a particular theme so that the the issues are a little bit more coherent. Each one has a has a has a point of view. And the the thought experiment we decided to to sort of frame it all around was um, thinking about South Royalton in 1974, where all these then young Austrian economists get together and they realize they they've got very different thoughts from the the main Samuelsonian paradigm that was reigning at the time um, and asking the question what would happen if that had happened today instead of happening in 1974 if you know the the standard story we tell that Mises and Hayek are seen to have lost the socialist calculation debate so sort of Austrian economics diffuses in this haphazard way throughout the economy 
Academy, and it doesn't have a sort of self-identity like it has from 1974 very strongly onwards. And I know some people were using the term Austrian before then, but even if you go back to man, economy, and state, Rothbard's using it basically in the past tense. I'm using the Austrian approach refers to von Bavert and Mises and not necessarily to um, contemporary work. And I know that changes over the course of the 60s. But anyway, um, so we asked, what are the hot topics today? Because if you go back and look at the papers from South Royalton, I wrote a piece about uh, for Liberty Fund about that, that volume and that collection. Um, if you look at those papers, it's very much concerned with the economic issues that were current in the 1970s, right? This is right at the beginning of the Rational Expectations Revolution in macroeconomics. Stagflation is going on, so there's a ton of concern with monetary theory, and I do think that's one of the areas where Austrians have been most productive over the past 40, 50 years. Tremendous strides uh, in monetary theory. Um, and then this all this stuff about equilibrium and entrepreneurship and so on and so forth. So all those were, were big topics in the 1970s. But what would happen if it happened in 2018, if the Austrian revival happened then? And so we picked topics that we thought were, were current and big in modern social science. Uh, so we had a conference that you participated in on philosophy, politics, and Austrian economics, because PPE, especially American-style PPE that blends the disciplines in a very substantive way, um, is a big topic nowadays. So what if we were blending Austrian economics with with political philosophy instead of blending neoclassical economics? Um, we did one that was sort of a broad header on sociality and Austrian economics, but that was meant to capture behavioral economics, experimental economics, economic sociology. So all of these uh, modern strands of economic research that try to complicate the homo economicus model and try to question that those basic rational choice uh, foundations and find something different. Um, and then, then COVID hit. <laughs> so a lot of these conferences didn't happen, but the, we still put together collections, uh, some of which are still being shopped around now. So I think um, maybe our most exciting collection, because we got a lot of buy-in from the economic history community, was on economic history and Austrian economics. Um, and so historian, economic historians seem very open to using this set of tools and seriously inquiring about this set of tools because they're used to balancing, I think, qualitative and quantitative evidence in a way that a lot of economists are getting better at, but still economic historians have much more, much more sensitivity uh, to those issues. Um, then we did one on contemporary methods. So there are critiques of econometrics written in 1970s and early 80s uh, in, e in Austrian economics, right as economists are getting personal computers and start running regressions all the time. Um, but econometrics has evolved tremendously since then. And we've added experimental economics and field work and so on and so forth. So we wanted to ask about Austrian, the Austrian relationship to those new contemporary um, ideas, both theoretical and empirical. And the last couple were sort of on the biggest issues, I think, confronting political economy today, which one was on uh, economic and political inequality, and one was on marginalized groups. So these race, gender issues, uh, those sorts of things. Um, so those are the six colloquia. We're still rearranging some of the papers to try and fit them in um, to different different collections. Uh, moving forward, uh, hopefully with the economic history one very soon in a journal, which we're excited about having a, a big collection there. And um, yeah, so it was, we learned a lot from the project. Unfortunately, you know, COVID did what it did to our, our ability to actually meet with people. Um, but the reception among we, and we tried to get as many people that were sort of new to Austrian economics or outsiders, or however you want to put it, um, at these conferences. And the response was, was overwhelmingly positive and even people couldn't make it polite. So we were very excited about that, that there seems to be some interest in having these discussions. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, so do you leave that project uh, very optimistic about the future of Austrian economics for young scholars like your students at Texas Tech or my students at uh, GMU or, or the students at, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of Middle Tennessee State University or over at King's? Um, you know, how do you. It's a it's it's a. There's a positive research program, right? Yeah, I think there's a there's a positive research program, and what people seem receptive to this idea that Austrian economics is like another set of tools that you can use, and so this is one of the things I think that you always used to say about sins of omission versus sins of commission, in that 
scholars today are not nearly as concerned with theoretical purity as what I sense from reading the journals in the 70s and early 80s. They're happy to take on, and there's good things and bad things about this, but they're happy to take on any sort of theory that they think helps them explain the world better. And that's the main thing that drives the best scholars that we interacted with was fundamentally a curiosity about the world rather than a preoccupation with some particular school of thought or ideology or point of view. And so that curiosity about the world, if you can show up and, you know, say, hey, here's this cool tool and here's how it helps me explain this social phenomenon, um, people are overwhelmingly receptive to that sort of work, um, I think, regardless of the, the theory that's being brought to bear. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, though, um, like yourself, <laughs> and as reflected in your own thing, um, there's, you know, we're a little bit bifurcated because there's a part of us which really longs for conceptual economics, uh, right? And this is your, this is my last set of questions to you, which is about your work on Frank Knight, uh, because there's probably no economist that uh, thought deeper about uh, the philosophical underpinnings of economics and conceptual issues in economics than Knight. And you've tried to wrestle with him. What's that experience like? And, and, and where's that at at the moment? So I got interested in Knight actually as part of the, the Hurricane Katrina project. And I guess this ties in with the idea of empirically examining alertness is where this ultimately ended up for me. Um, but we were in a van uh, driving around New Orleans and uh, one of the, I think it was Emily Shamley, right? But one of the uh, more senior researchers asked the uh, the driver about like, are you worried about another storm coming, et cetera? And the driver's response was, I don't, storms we can deal with. The rain comes when it comes. What we don't know about is what the government's going to do. What we don't know about is the policy environment, right? Is sort of the what this person's thinking. And I didn't know night at that time, but that I knew that I had heard this distinction between risk and uncertainty. So that's what made me start reading him was precisely that trip. So I went home, bought a coffee uh, and started digging into night and trying to think about ways to empirically talk about Knightian uncertainty using that ethnographic evidence is what sort of led me down the path that ultimately I found, I think I found more of my answers in Kirzner at the end of the day. Uh, but sort of like Lockman, I think Knight sets up the problem in the right way and that he he understands the sort of uh, epistemic situation that human beings find themselves in and the difficulties of dealing with that. Kirzner calls it the agony of choice. He says you have to admit that there's an agony of choice that the individual confronts as opposed to the idea of the choice being mechanical or you know, sort of just robot choice, right? And I think that that's a, a very interesting, you know, nuanced position because it's not that you're crippled, but you have to cope with various things. And this is like Hayek talking about our coping with our ignorance and, you know, very, and we, we form all these institutions as, as aids to the human mind to be able to help us uh, cope in this world of uncertainty and, and, uh, and, 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 and these other issues. So I think that the main thing I got out of reading night, like diving deep into it. And I think this, this might put me at odds with other, other night scholars in terms of how I read it is that a lot of people think about night as talking about different sorts of situations that human beings find themselves in. Like there's the risk situation and there's the uncertainty situation. And sometimes it's one and sometimes it's the other. Um, whereas I read it very much as a more existential idea that uncertainty is always there. There's different questions that relate to different types of ignorance, risk versus ambiguity later with Ellsberg and then uncertainty. Um, but that uncertainty is always there. And so sort of what my a bunch of my papers are are all about is trying to say, what if we elevate uncertainty to the level of scarcity in economic theory? And what does economics look like if we take that seriously as a part of the fundamental problem that we confront? Like we, we confront radical uncertainty, so we have to 
I think the, the best way I can describe it is to use our imagination. And that's the language I've more converged on is imagination simply because fewer people use it. They don't have as many preconceptions as they do about uncertainty. So imagination is our response to uncertainty and choice is our response to scarcity. But these things are, are joined at the hip in that we can't we can't choose something if we haven't imagined it first. We have to imagine a course of action and then we can we can pick among the, the, the courses of action that we've imagined. See, Adam, conceptual economics still matters. <laughs> as as as, as our, our good colleague Pete Leeson uh, recently wrote, economics isn't statistics. So there is still a logic of economics that we need to get right. But I agree with you that there's tremendous opportunities in the economics profession today because of the applied turn um, in economics. And, uh, and we have things to say about that as well. Anyway, uh, Adam, thank you very much for a great conversation. It's been uh, very enlightening and I wish you great success uh, with your work as you continue to do great things down there in Texas Tech. And just for the sake of everyone, guns up. Guns up. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.